0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario party leaders clashed over health care, affordability, and the environment at last night's debate. Were there any winners? And what is the great replacement theory that they've been talking about over the last couple of days? We'll delve into that. Google claims that Ottawa's online news bill could actually spread more misinformation and propaganda. Jeffrey Devorkin, senior fellow at Massey College, will join us to talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml to begin with on the program today we want to go back to last night the leaders debate here in the province of ontario uh took place this is the only official debate there was one of course about northern ontario a week or so ago uh but this is maybe the only time that we the voting public are going to have an opportunity to see all three uh on the stage, four rather, on the stage at the same time and uh, debating ideas uh It was was kind of a mishmash last night. and I I know invariably when we talk about debates, we want to talk about winners and losers. I don't even know if we can declare a winner or loser in this, but we do want to analyze this because this is important with the the election itself coming up. Well, the advance polls start, I guess, next week, but the election itself on the 2nd of June. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Alan Hale. Uh, Alan is a reporter for Queen's Park Today, and he joins us. Uh, Alan, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: You were there last night. Uh, what, what was the buzz of the room as they were getting set for this?
1: Well, uh, it was uh, quite a dramatic scene down there uh, this uh, uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, the, uh, every, the whole thing was held at uh, TVO's um, studios down in downtown Toronto. Uh, TVO is one of the, um, the broadcasters, part of the consortium that hosted this thing. And they were, uh, the candidates were met with protesters outside. We uh, saw... Uh, people from um, SIU, uh, SEIU Health, um, which is a one of the major um, uh, healthcare unions, they had a lot of uh, people out there. Uh, apparently, some of them tried to st- uh, block uh, 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 PC leader Doug Ford's bus from pulling in. And we also saw some people uh, protesting from the New Blue Party, wh- who were not whose um, leader uh, Jim Carahalios was uh, not allowed to participate last night. Uh, so it was a contentious atmosphere right from the beginning, and it certainly seemed like it carried into the debate itself, which was quite fiery uh, at times.
0: Yeah, it was. I've, I noticed that, it, you know, it's kind of like on you know, the postgame show here. At, at first, uh, they were all taking shots at each other. And then uh, about 15, 20 minutes into it, I guess they all just kind of decided, look, you know, th- that's the guy to beat. And and all three of, of the opposition leaders went after Ford pretty extensively and pretty aggressively, didn't they?
1: I mean, yes. Um it was quite, uh, they did, uh, gang up on him, uh, quite a bit, but I mean, in the, um, North, the Northern, uh, policy debate that you mentioned, the only other debate we've seen this, uh, can this, um, cycle, uh, Ford was often, um, you know, just talking over people. He would try to like bull, oh he would sort of bulldoze other candidates and not stop talking when, um, he was, uh, prompted to by the moderators. And now the kind of the opposite happened for him last night, uh, Whenever he stru- tried to start making attacks uh, on the other parties, uh, which were often like sound bites, you know, they're going to jack up your taxes or whatever, um, they all started interjecting at once. <laughs> and uh, it sort of took the wind out of his sails a bit, uh, but it also sort of, it, at times sort of turned the... Um, The whole discussion into kind of incomprehensible jabbering but that is sort of run of the mill for election debates isn't it
0: it is it is and uh, you know as we look at the way things are in the polls right now and of course they all look at the polls before they they jump into these sorts of things we look at what happened before and and you know the the pc still had a a comfortable lead if there's any such thing in politics as a comfortable Mm -hmm. lead Uh, just on the basis of what you heard last night uh I, I'm I'm going to guess right now, Alan, that there's probably not going to be much change. I mean, did you see anything or hear anything from any of the other three that would catapult them ahead, or at least you know, get, you know, shorten that gap?
1: Oh, it's hard to say. Honestly, it is. Um,
0: let's see. I I, I, I I thought some of the best jabs last night were from Mike Schreiner from the Green Party, um, I, who, who went after him pretty aggressively, especially about Bill 124 and uh, and his defensive nurses. What was the quote? Uh, uh you now have you talked to any nurses lately how could you call these people our healthcare heroes and then <laughs> essentially cut their wages that that was pretty stinging and, and you could see that Ford was was upset by that
1: Mhm actually Schreiner has done I think very very well in these past two baits and especially last night this is the first time the greens have been allowed Uh, into uh, the uh, provincial debates. Uh, Last cycle, they uh, didn't even have a seat uh, at that point, and so uh, their leader was not allowed uh, on stage. Uh, And, yeah, he has definitely, you know, been uh, one of the best debaters on there, I think. He takes his shots. Uh, Last night, he was definitely going after Ford he would always say well my question for Mr. Ford is this and then it would be something staying like the example you uh um put forward he's definitely I think he straddles the line between you know being passionate and like and being you know understandable he gets his like technical points in there he always talking about like the greens uh uh, housing plan which was uh praised quite highly in the uh, Toronto star fact that he uh, keeps mentioning over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think Shriner is definitely one of the best performers of this night and the past debate, but I guess it's sort of easy to be that when no one's attacking you because no one thinks you're going to win or really get more than one or possibly two seats this election.
0: Yeah, and he did actually make that request, didn't he, for more Greens to be elected. And he mentioned to mm-hmm. him in writing, I guess, where he figures they've got a shot. And, uh, well, who knows what's going to happen. But I, I thought he, he was he was pretty solid. Uh, and, and took some shots at the other two as well, at, at Del Duca and at Horvath, for some of the policies that they were enacting. So you know, give give him a, a check, I guess, on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about Andrew Horvath. Uh, there's You've heard the speculation. Heck, you've been writing about it, Alan. Uh that this may well be her last campaign as as the leader of the party if they don't do well in this election uh you know you've heard the rumors that uh, that uh you know the knives may be out or the trap door is going to be sprung whatever the analogy you want to use here so there's a lot of pressure on her to do well or you know pack her bags i guess
1: well i mean she's this is her fourth time at uh, at bat for this and i mean I know that the there are she has a lot of supporters in the party. Um, she's well liked uh, in at least among the caucus as far as I can tell. but really at, it's not really about that people don't like her. It's about the fact that she's had four times at this. And if she can't make this work and she can't make the last um, uh, election where they even the uh, NDP even had a stronger chance of uh, winning, it seemed like there for a moment then it is you the conversations will happen i mean like they'll have to start talking about whether they need a change of leadership the um we've had uh polling come out uh, that uh indicated that uh people view um her as too negative i was actually at some friends of my partner who uh, were saying oh she never um she never proposes anything uh any solutions she just complains all the time and i was like I mean, the NDP puts forward legislation in the in the legislature all the time, but it just never passes. But the perception is there. The oh, perception yeah. is that she's like negative and a complainer and a whiner and whatever. Uh, and I'm sure the PCs are very happy about that. Uh, but yeah, I think at some point, if they don't make significant gains if they don't form government this time, I they re- the party really does have to sit down and think about if they need a new face out there for the you know for the next cycle
0: well and, and that's a it's a matter of numbers really isn't it Alan when you look at it this way because you're absolutely right I mean the internal polling within the party they all like her uh you know when they ask province-wide about that I mean she usually ranks maybe second sometimes first when it comes to likability uh but I guess the thing that the NDP are concerned right now is not likability but electability uh you know hmm. they've got an ideal opportunity or they they did anyway of course when Kathleen Wynne was going down uh, to be able to grab that. And it didn't quite work out. And uh, now the speculation is, what if they lose seats? Uh, you know, the, I know everybody's running to be premier right now, but you got to look at the realities here. And that's, that's, I guess, the challenge that's, that she's facing right now. And, and you know, she tried to, I guess, to empathize last night, you know, for the, the, the hard pressed people in the province, et cetera. But and I'm I'm not doubting her sincerity. I'm sure she feels that way. But we've heard that song before, and, and you know, voters have already decided whether they like it or not. So uh, there wasn't a whole lot new. The other obviously qu- person we want to talk about here is uh, Stephen Del Duca. You know, his party got decimated, of course, four years ago in that election. Uh, I, they've got to make up a lot of ground, and and I know that you know it's there's an indication in the polling right now, Alan, that they, they seem to be progressing a little bit, but I, I don't know if he did enough last night to be able to to move the yardsticks.
1: Yeah, that's the thing about what needed uh, what needed to happen last night was that Stephen Del Duca needed to like really really outshine Doug Ford, and I certainly think he, I think he outshone Doug Ford. I don't think Doug Ford had a very good night last night. I really don't. But I don't know that it was enough. He's still, you know, he's been party leader for some time. And how many of, uh, you know, I'm sure your listeners know who he is, because you keep them well-informed, Bill. I'm sure they do. But, like, the Ontarians in general, I don't know if they still didn't know who De- Stephen Del Duca was a few weeks ago. And that's just been his problem. And um, last night... I think like I said he was, I think he did well. I think he did well or at least better than he did in the northern debate where he was constantly bowled over by Ford and he just sort of stammered and like you know waited for the moderator to come rescue him. Uh, this time it was much different. He was like interjecting and trying to and getting his hits in and like throwing Ford off balance. But was there a killer blow anywhere in there? i don't know i don't think so even like when the two finally like came to like blows and he told um he told ford over his handling of education that he should be ashamed and it was like oh this is the this is the attack this is it and you know yeah i don't know
0: (laughs) well the accusation that del duca made more than once was that that ford was just trying to you know Relitigate the 2018 election and he says you know that's been there done that the voters have already passed judgment on that we want to look forward and 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 ford and a lot of politicians do this but i noticed it a lot with ford last night clearly he was given a a four or five you know talking points that you know keep hammering these and and for instance i mean no matter what they were talking about healthcare or education somehow or another uh when ford was answering it got around to the fact that i'm building highways (laughs) So that just seemed to be one of the points you wanted to drive home not necessarily relevant to the question but it was there uh and i agree with you totally i, th- I think he was on his heels a lot of the night uh but i don't think anybody that is a forward supporter is going to say well forget him now you know he's they're, they're, they'll stick with him uh totally. and the, i guess the challenge here is since the liberals did so badly in the last election how many of those seats can they recapture and, and you know did those disenchanted liberal voters stay home or did they go to the ndp well you know we'll have to do that analysis but i guess that's what they're playing on right now
1: uh, it's interesting you mentioned the like sloganeering that ford was doing as you're right it, uh, he, most of his performance last night was just throwing out um, was throwing out sound bites really and it didn't translate very well on camera that people would have been watching but um uh, Doug Ford was spent spent most of the debate last night looking through a binder on his um, on his podium, uh, and which none of the other candidates had. His uh, party initially uh, no notes were going to be allowed in this in this debate, but the PCs fought hard for Ford to bring that binder in. Um, and yeah, he, every time the camera was not on him, uh, he was rifling through that, uh, that binder looking for, uh, I don't know, something to say and <laughs> something to respond. And it really did. It may have kept him on track. It may have stopped him from putting his foot in his mouth. Like he is sometimes prone to do, but it just, uh, it came off like he wasn't engaged. I felt with what the questions were sometimes he would be like he had a more of a genuine response this time when he was talking about um, his handling of the pandemic. Uh, He admitted, uh, you know, uh, mistakes were made, but when the, those mistakes were being like picked apart by the other um, the other party leaders, he got really defensive and he was like, well, it's easy for you to sit on the sidelines. So when you weren't making the decisions I was making, and um, Del Duca, after the debate, told reporters, well, that's just uh, Doug Ford looking for pity. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it was a good night for Ford. But the point of uh, now is because with their huge lead, uh, what they need now is just not to have a disaster. They didn't need that. What they absolutely needed to avoid was Ford just like doing so- or saying something that would like completely sink the ship. Uh, which, you know, with him is is a possibility. So they got him his binder and they kept him on the sound bites and there was no real disaster. So that's probably everything the PCs wanted out of this.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how we do as a public uh, react to this and respond to, uh, to what we heard last night. And, and like you say, I don't know how many people were watching it uh, last night uh, on, on the networks. Uh, I think most of us, uh, depending on what they were doing last night, are going to depend on sound bites uh, that they're going to hear and conversations like this. And I'm not so sure that anybody's mind has been changed about what's going to happen here. I, I think you're going to see some shifting around. But as, uh, as one of your colleagues mentioned last night, it's, this has really kind of turned into a race for second place. And uh, mm-hmm. that's going to be interesting. I, and, as you say, unless Ford trips and falls on his face and does a face plant, I, I'm not so sure that, uh, that a whole lot's going to change here. He's probably going to lose a few seats. But, you know, they're still in majority territory, aren't they?
1: Oh, yes. And they have – they really – well, I don't know. They released it. But it was leaked that they had internal polling saying that they believe they're going to win upwards of 84 to more than 90 seats. I don't know. I don't know that. I do um... That seems optimistic to me. if uh, well, for they're at like around seventy seats, just so people get the idea yeah. of how much of an increase that is. Um, maybe they'll lose a seat, but maybe they'll take a few. They'll take another uh, few, but it does seem like unless something does change, we are set for another uh, PC majority of some kind.
0: Well, I'm going to win the lottery tomorrow night, too, and I'm going to believe that right up until the fact time that I don't confirm uh, <laughs> <laughs> that. Alan, a great job, uh, as always. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, anytime. You betcha. Alan Hale, reporter for Queen's Park Today, uh, who attended the debate last night. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's so many things going on outside of the interior political realm that we need to discuss. Uh, just moments ago, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden touched down in Buffalo, New York, and he's going to be meeting with the families of the victims of that horrific event uh, that happened, of course, on uh, on the weekend uh, in Buffalo. Our neighbors uh, not too far away, of course, uh, here in southern Ontario uh... and as we've heard about the the individual that's under arrest right now uh... and some of the allegations and some of the history uh... that uh, seems to be following him around uh... there's a phrase that keeps coming up time and time again called White Replacement Theory. And there's a, a, a document that is alleged to have been written uh, by the individual who's under arrest uh, with touting uh, the, the tenets of this uh, theory. So let's talk a little bit about exactly what that is, what it entails, and, and where it's come from. And uh, to do that, uh, we are so pleased to welcome Still to the program waiting, David. Uh, Dr. David Hoffman. Uh, Dr. Hoffman is an Associate Professor of Sociology with the University of New Brunswick, also a Senior Research Affiliate with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism security and society doctor pleasure to have you on the program thank you so much for the time today hi how are you let's talk a little bit about about this phrase that, that we've heard so much about over the last two days or three days uh maybe not new to to people in your field of course who've been studying this for quite some time uh the great replacement theory uh that yes. this individual has questioned and 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 uh, referred to on a number of occasions exactly what is this and where did it come from
2: it is uh essentially uh, a part of the the larger far-right discourse that um, has trickled its way up from the United States into Canada and beyond. Um, It's uh, really a a mishmash, a a cobbled together theory that uh, essentially argues that the uh, white race or whatever the the far-right actors define as the white race is uh, slowly but surely being pushed out by a mixture of political correctness, uh, immigration, um, tolerance, multiculturalism, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's part of of uh, really a, a shift in far-right discourse that uh, has taken place over the last 10 to 15 years, that um, uh, when we thought of far-right actors in, in the 80s and 90s, we would typically think of Skinheads uh, wearing leather cuffs and and uh, essentially going out aggressively and targeting and beating up, and attacking and harassing people of color and, and other minority groups, uh, and in the last ten years or so, the discourse has changed to a, a more um, a, a victimized slash defensive rhetoric. Uh, gone or well, not gone, but the the days where. Uh, skinheads would go out and, and beat up people, and, and the idea was attack, uh, about attack, 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 have been replaced with, if we don't do something, we are going to disappear. Uh, there's these insidious forces, uh, these insidious groups, and these, these uh, cultural ideas that are being forced upon uh, Canadians and Americans that, that will uh, destroy what they envision to be the white race.
0: Do you know, as I as I was listening to your answer, I was just kind of going back, and I guess a few years ago, just to remind our listeners, uh, during the the awful uh, insurrections that were going on, uh, one in Charlottesville, of course, at, uh, now the famous one where Donald Trump said there were good people on both sides. But as we yep. watched that procession through the the main streets there, uh, Professor, what we saw uh, was uh, the people with the torches, etc., and they said, "You will not replace us. Uh, Jews yep. will not replace us." That was the chant they were sending, uh which I guess is is really i guess born from this idea this concept isn't it
2: yeah and if you notice uh and if you go and watch footage from that time uh, th- this is part of this this overall shift that's been happening with far-right rhetoric these uh this is when the the concept of the alt-right although uh, it was prior to this but this is when it starts to really catch public attention and the the um the individuals in those in those images who are chanting you will not replace us holding tiki torches and. Screaming at cameras are still the typical uh, angry young white men that that we've come to associate with the far right, but uh, they have, have uh, adopted a veneer of respectability where where it's again no longer Doc Martens, leather leather cuffs, and and uh, and jackets and and swastika tattoos. Those uh, it's now uh, polo shirts, polo pants, ties, uh, suits, and so on and so forth, and it's all it's all about uh, tapping into this this message which they hope will become. Uh, which they hope will be more palatable to uh, a wider audience and that's the idea of of uh they're coming to get us it, it's become less let's go get them and they're coming to get us and uh it it taps into to one of these these human fears of uh of the other um and uh, whatever that other is the far right again they they have their their targeted groups but they 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 never um it, 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 they essentially use them to hold them up as, as boogeymen. And uh, they, they use this concept of the great replacement as, as, uh, to spark this idea of an imminent threat. So this is not something that will happen five years from now to them. It's happening now.
0: And has been for some time. I, as I Googled this this morning, to, as we were preparing for our discussion this morning, uh, the, a book came up uh, on here that I, I, of course, have not read. Uh, but it, it, it's by uh, a William Luther Pierce, and it's called The Turner Diaries. Uh, yeah. That was back in 1978, so there's some history here, isn't there?
2: Yeah, uh, that is... uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his actual name. His actual name is Alexander MacDonald. Andrew uh, MacDonald. Andrew MacDonald, I'm sorry. Uh, They they use pseudonyms. Thank you. Um, This is essentially uh, became, in the 1980s and 90s, it became the far-right handbook. It it envisions... It's a story of of, uh, a bunch of... um, I create a cell and essentially uh, overthrow the uh, tyrannical shadow government using a variety of tactics. And... Uh, it actually became the model for for what we think of as as the golden age of far right terrorism in in the united states so these these cells of of uh small largely independent uh the word they use is leaderless resistance uh uh far right actors who would go out and plan these acts of violence against this, this other this 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 uh, uh these other groups um and uh, it, it was uh, essentially uh, Timothy McVeigh followed it i i think i, I even remember um, I, I think the, uh, the the book details uh, using a fertilizer bomb to blow up a government building. I think Timothy McVeigh uh, mimicked it, and uh, yeah. and so I mean it's it's not a new idea. This idea has been around for decades. It's just been it, it's been recycled and rebranded.
0: What's the connection with the, the? They seem to clump the Jews in as the perpetrators of this. Is there a, a, a history to that that seemed to be rather incongruous to suggest that it's it's non-whites that are doing this uh, and and infiltrating. I guess is one of the words I saw. But they they seem to be blaming this all on on, on Jews.
2: Yeah, Jews are are typical. I mean, this is post World War II uh, xenophobia. I mean, Jews have always yeah. suffered from from. Uh, systemic persecution in one way or another. So this is a centuries old uh process. But uh, especially the, the modern incarnation of at least the North American modern incarnation of anti-Semitism is tied closely to the ideas uh, surrounding post World War II Nazism. Uh and and use the same old tropes that, that go as far as uh, back as the Protocols of Elders of Zion, which is turn of turn of the, the what, twentieth century, nineteenth century. Uh it's Russian Tsarist uh Tsarist propaganda. So it's it's uh, it's something that's that's ingrained uh, within uh, the culture to a certain degree. I'm not, I'm not uh, and I'm not by any means saying you know oh you know uh, everyone is anti-Semitic. It's 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 these are tropes that have uh, longstanding uh, culture and uh, and um, distribution amongst North American and European communities. So they're they're easy to tack onto, and it, I mean it, it dates back to uh, centuries old anti-Semitism
0: there's another book uh, that uh, that I wanted to reference uh, uh, by uh, uh, Renaud camus a french writer published in 2011. Uh, and essentially talking uh, of variation, I guess, on this theme uh, that European, Europe is being invaded by black and brown immigrants from Africa uh, Le Grand Replacement is a, the French of, of the title of the book, uh, which yeah. seems to be the basis for an awful lot of the, the, the I guess rioting, really, and certainly demonstrations uh, during the times when refugees and, and to a certain extent even just immigrants uh, were leaving war torn zones uh, in, in the Middle East and in and other regions and heading towards Europe, and there's a lot of pushback in France and Germany and other countries. It seems to be based on this theory.
2: It's, it's just, again, it's a recycling of the same sort of idea, uh, an idealized, uh, fictionalized uh, other that uh, becomes the, the focus of, of fear, of, of xenophobia, and, and a rallying point for uh, people who, uh, for a small minority of people who uh, need to understand and and, and conceptualize and, and digest uh, problems uh, within their world, with what they see in the world around them. Uh, within the, case, the European case, um, here in North America, we're protected. Uh, protected is the wrong word. Uh, we're surrounded by uh, two seas, which which makes immigration or illegal immigration uh, difficult. Whereas in Europe, uh, they share a landmass with with these uh, countries where that are war torn, and uh, these individuals can can um, uh, go into these countries whether legally or illegally. Um, so here in, in the North American context, although not it, this isn't, uh, devo- there's not there's there's still a rooted anti-Semitism in the European context. Whereas North American far right extremists focus on Jews who came over in waves of immigration in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Uh, the 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 targeted other are uh, what the the far right actors in Europe see as the problem, which is people of color. Uh, in France, they they target Muslims, and so on and so forth.
0: How does it live these days, though, Doctor? As we look at this, I know that a, a number of your colleagues have studied this, and uh, they point to a large extent, of course, at Fox News and some of the hosts on that uh, network, uh, suggesting that they are, and they're not necessarily advocating violence, but the takeover and uh, the fact that they should be afraid, very afraid. I know some of the far-right uh, conservative uh, people running for office right now uh, like uh, House Republican Conference Chair, uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, are always referring to these sorts of things about they're coming to get us, they're coming to take your jobs and to take your votes away. Uh, so that seems to be putting wind beneath the, into the sails of the people that are, are following this theory.
2: Uh, and it plays into to a larger um, sense of, of, of fear of uh, uncertainty exacerbated by things like COVID, by the economy, uh, by by long standing um, cultural norms and tropes uh that that came back to even as early as as uh, the, the days of slavery in the united states um and these these are things that that politicians and and uh, uh, some of these for profit um new stations well they're all for profit but these new stations are, are are tapping into and uh they're successful for a reason it 's because that that fear and that trepidation are there, and they are absolutely. Exacerbating um, uh, the uh, the issue uh, not necessarily directly, but um, what we know from from just the general study of, of terrorism and and radicalization towards violence is um, you, it, every terrorist uh, that actually escalates towards violence doesn 't uh, progress towards that act in, in a social vacuum. They are part of and identify with a larger community, and, and actually there have been some pretty authoritative arguments by terrorism scholars that argue that, at least in the eyes of the terrorists themselves, what they're engaged in is, is an act of ultimate altruism. They see themselves as heroes and vanguards fighting for a cause, fighting for a people uh, through the use of violence. Uh, so what these this this fear-mongering and, uh, the, that uh, gets employed by, by politicians in um, the U.S. and in Canada uh, is essentially, uh, creating that, 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 uh, uh, quote unquote fearful support base which the small minority of, of violent actors, uh, associate with and, and essentially commit these acts of, of terrorism and violence, uh, in the name of these communities. So, so yes, they are part of the problem, although in, in indirect way.
0: Uh, And maybe not so indirect sometimes. I know one quote from Tucker Carlson says that uh, the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters that are now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. That pretty much encapsulates everything, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, Tucker Carlson is is, um, the the exception to the rule, I suppose. Uh, he's, uh, He's always a hotbed for these types of things. But... Keep in mind, he he's been given a platform to do this, yeah. and and even uh, he's not he never says go out and shoot the minorities. He never no. says we need to engage in violence, but he's quite good at skirting the line. He's uh, the, his team is quite good at at fanning the flames because they know it'll get viewers. There's an old saying in journalism, and as a journalist yourself, you you uh, you probably know it. If it bleeds, it leaves, right? The it's the oh, stories. Yeah. It's it's the the violent stories that that get get the headlines um this is this is a, a this is the exact same thing but kind of a, a low a low constant dose uh and it absolutely contributes uh, do, uh you have a point it is that 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 you can't get more direct than that, but again he's not calling for violence.
0: No, but, well, you know, that look into the camera, like, well, you know what you have to do about it, so we'll just leave it yeah. at that, and people will make up their own minds. Doctor, a mm-hmm. pleasure to have you back on the program. Great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you. Dr. David Hoffman, thank you so much for your time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a very contentious piece of legislation that the federal government has been trying to work on for for years now in this particular iteration of it it's uh, it's a bill that is supposed to be controlling uh, what's going on on the internet essentially uh that seems to be the the crux of it but there's got some pushback as we expected from some of the uh, affected companies by this including google one of the web giants uh, at the heart of the federal government's online news bill says this legislation that the federal government is now trying to get push through would actually lower the quality of journalism in canada and contribute to the worrying spread of misinformation. That's the claim from Google. Uh, and, of course, the government says, no, it's not true. So where are we on this, and what are the implications? Uh, to uh, delve into this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jeffrey Devorkin, who is a senior fellow at Massey College, also the former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and author of a book called Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
3: Nice to be with you, Bill.
0: This kind of sounds like a sense of deja vu. Now, this is not a new idea. Federal government's been trying to push some legislation like this through. Uh, They finally emulated, uh, uh, to a certain extent, what the uh, the government of Australia did uh, with that. Uh, As a matter of fact, and Google's using the same arguments here in Canada that they used in Australia. What what do you make of the back and forth that's going on here?
3: Well, I think Google is trying to... uh draw a line in the sand metaphorically and and basically say uh, if you do this to us, all sorts of things, terrible things will happen. Uh, The Europeans have already made it pretty clear that uh, digital uh, platforms have to be, have to take some kind of responsibility for the content that they are distributing like anything else. And Google is saying, well, you don't punish the phone company when somebody says something nasty over a phone line. But sometimes people who do make threats or uh, do unpleasant things using a a phone line are responsible and that the phone company, while it's not monitoring what's said on on phone calls, uh, is still responsible to a certain extent. And I think that in a digital age, Media platforms like Google and Facebook and TikTok have to be responsible if something dreadful occurs on their property. And we saw this just uh, the last, uh, on the weekend in Buffalo, New York, where this clearly disturbed young man tried to stream his murderous activities on a platform, and the platform immediately took it down which to me says, yeah, they are responsible and they're starting to understand the implications of what they do.
0: Well, and that's, of course, mirroring what happened in New Zealand a couple of years ago with that tr- horrific uh, uh, invasion and, of course, slaughter that occurred in the mosque uh, where the prime minister basically told them, they shut Twitter down and said, that, you, know, you guys are responsible, we're not debating it, we're telling you, you're responsible. Uh, and uh, these companies aren't used to anybody pushing back on them.
3: No, they're not,
0: and they have made a tremendous amount of money
3: uh, rebroadcasting or reprogramming and reproducing uh, the content that people put on there. Now, I agree to a certain extent there is a free speech issue that if someone wants to make a complaint about uh, their boss or the government, um, and does the government or your boss have a right to monitor this? and I think to a certain extent they do. I mean, when you go into a business and you're using the emails of that of that company, do you have the right to transmit non non-business uh, content on your boss's <laughs> excuse me on your boss's website? And clearly you do not. And this can be seen as a fireable offense and Your company uh, has a certain liability involved here, too. So I think that what Google is trying to do is raise the specter of free speech and privacy, which are clearly important issues, but they're doing it in a way that's going to guarantee their continued profit margins, and that's, that's
0: the problem. Uh, well, the concern, and and as I hear the arguments from Twitter and now it's it's Google and Facebook, I mean because they've all weighed in on this, uh, is they say we're doing nothing wrong here. You know, we're just a, we're not even a facilitator. We're just the platform, as, as you say. But platforms have been regulated for quite some time before the internet came along i mean uh, newspapers radio stations television stations uh, are regulated we can't say whatever we want do whatever we want or reproduce whatever we want uh with a, outside of the regulations that have been set in place and these guys basically say yeah but we're, we're different we're exempted from that and that's a pretty shallow argument at this stage
3: yeah, I think so and and they're they're kind of whistling past the digital graveyard as it were. <laughs> uh the 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 change is about to happen and they're they're doing what they think they need to do to satisfy their shareholders to so say we did everything we could to stop the government from imposing their 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 restrictions on us, but I think that's uh that's not going to happen. And I think that there has to be some reasonable understanding of the nature of of what is allowable in a digital environment. And I think that in the olden days of even a few years ago, people could say a lot of things on radio stations or uh, in emails or in podcasts. uh, But it's clear that the public is saying, no, no, there has to be some limits.
0: And I know some people are going to hear this conversation as we have in the past, uh, uh, Jeff, and say, "Look, yeah, you know, Kelly's got a vested interest in this because the media is getting slaughtered now by the uh, by digital media, and and you now the revenues are down." And we know these these are these are not you know speculative stories. I mean, we know that newspapers have closed, uh, radio stations are amalgamating, reducing staff, and a lot of it has to do with with the reduced revenue. But the problem, as, as we see it, uh, is is much more general in this is basically some of these platforms are simply saying why would you advertise on a radio station or a newspaper uh you can come and advertise with us we just reproduce what they're doing anyway so you get the best of both worlds uh and oh. there's a sense of fairness here but you have which i think is bordering on illegality that they're basically reproducing material that they're not producing
3: exactly i think you're you're absolutely right um, there was a uh, a shock jock in quebec city uh Andre Arthur who just died a couple of days ago and he was so outrageous and deliberately so uh that the CRTC removed the uh, the license to broadcast from any radio station that he was on so there are consequences and you can disagree with it and say that someone like uh Andre Arthur had the right to say outrageous things but uh there is a kind of sense of community In all media, and you're part of it, and I'm part of it, and we have to figure out a way in which we balance free speech, uh, with open, with open microphones, as it were. And that, and that is, that's, that's the obligation that journalism has. Journalism is about making choices, and journalism is also about serving the public in the best way while continuing to make a reasonable profit.
0: Well, and we saw an example of that uh, when Facebook was before the congressional committees, and and they also, uh, you know, had a a session before the parliamentary committee on this side of the border, too. And and what Zuckerberg basically said is, look, we'll publish stuff that we know is lie and false and misleading, but we leave it up to the reader to decide. Well, that's 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 passing the buck i mean there's a responsibility here if they know that it's wrong and that it's illegal and and it could be misconstrued by an awful lot of people uh, i i i think and i think most canadians think that they do have a responsibility to say no we're not going to do that uh, there are enough gullible people or enough you know people that are indoctrinated uh, as as we've seen with some of the acts that have been carried out uh, as a result of some of these posts that you can't do that it's an irresponsibility and and you know you could say you're complicit in these ensuing crimes because you're the one that that perpetrated these and gave these people a platform that's a dangerous road going down to simply say you know you guys can do whatever you want and say whatever you want
3: exactly and it's funny you should mention this right now i'm just preparing my My course, uh, I'm teaching a class this summer at St. Michael's College at U of G on uh, media ethics. And so I've just been preparing what are the ethical guidelines that media, all media, must follow. And one of the first ones is something called John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Does the good of the story outweigh any negative consequence? And when you ask that question, then you start thinking in a much broader way about what is the value of the content that is being allowed to go out there and who might be harmed by this content and do they deserve the harm is the other question that media ethics asks and is the person who is harmed defenseless and to me those are kind of the critical questions that all media organizations should be asking themselves on a regular basis and, and the, the bottom line, the race to the bottom, or the race to the bottom line, is what some news organizations, some media organizations are doing, and they're saying, well, we're not going to worry about it. We'll, we'll let it sort itself out in the court of public opinion. But by that time, it's, it may be too late, and we saw that in Buffalo.
0: And and stories that are just as egregious, which by the way is starting to resurface. Uh, yeah, the one some years ago that Hillary Clinton was uh, the, the the head of a, a child pornography and human trafficking ring that was being run out of some pizza joint or someplace, uh, and that was published and, and repeated and and of course retweeted and 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 forwarded in on so many websites. I mean, everybody knew it was ludicrous. There was no basis of fact in that, yet they let it stand. I, I mean, that's that's the the extreme of this. And what this guy was doing, this this alleged perpetrator in Buffalo this past weekend simply emulating and actually repeating uh some of the stuff from from the new zealand uh situation from a few years ago the the tragedy and the and the slaughter that occurred there yeah it's one thing to say yeah we took the video down right away well good for you but but the thoughts and the concepts and the process that that that's that fed this beast are still there absolutely and we're
3: seeing it now as uh certain politicians certainly in the United States, but even a few more in Canada, are talking about what's called the Great Replacement Theory, uh, yeah. that white white people are going to be replaced by uh, people of color. And and this is creating, in a time of huge anxiety, economic uncertainty, a lot of misinformation and disinformation, and it's dangerous. It's really dangerous.
0: Well, we said that in the last U.S. election, didn't we? Uh, you know, those votes don't count. Essentially what, what Trump and his his acolytes were doing was saying the the votes of black people shouldn't count as much as white votes. Uh, you know, so they should be right off the bat tossed out. And that's what he was trying to do in Georgia. That's what he's trying to do in Pennsylvania. And it's all based on this, this replacement theory, that these people are allowed into this country so that they can overwhelm the white people and take over the country. And, and I mean, it's an, a ridiculous and ludicrous concept, but it's a growing concept down there because it's being fed by some of the misinformation that's being put on these platforms.
3: And it's not and, uh, absolutely- and by the way,
0: on, on the public airwaves, too. there's a certain network down in the states, of course, that, that, that lives by those standards.:
3: Exactly. And, and we're seeing some of that creep up here in Canada, and we have to be really aware of that and make sure that it doesn't spread in the same way that it's doing in the United States.
0: And and I agree with you. By the way, there is a concern here about freedom of speech. Uh, you know, they're, they're saying that the government's going to control that. Well, that's not the intent of the bill at all. Uh, and and there are some guidelines and some guardrails that are in this. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I and mean, that's why we have debate and open discussion about that. And and you know, there may be some massaging of Bill C-118 uh, before it finally sees the light of day. And and but it's as you said off the top, Jeff there's an inevitability to this. Australia's done this, a number of the European nations have already done this, uh, and it's about time that Canada and the U.S. caught up with that.
3: Amen, brother.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'll let you get back to preparing your course. That sounds like it's going to be a fascinating time for the the folks at St. Michael's College to take your course in this. Uh, We'll see how this goes too, if they can do something about this before their summer recess uh, up in Parliament. But it's always a pleasure to get your input into this, Jeff. Thanks so much for this today.
3: My pleasure. Cheers.
0: Take care. Jeffrey DeVorkin, of course, a uh, senior fellow at Massey College and a former director of journalism at the U of T and Scarborough campus. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.